Welcome to Cards Chat, the friendliest poker podcast in town from the world's number one poker community. Hey everyone, I'm your host, Robbie Straczynski. Thank you so much for joining us on episode number 95 of Cards Chat, the friendliest poker podcast in town. Today's guest is Matt Stout. He's a professional poker player from Las Vegas with over $4 million in career winnings and now seven World Series of Poker rings. His professional success notwithstanding, perhaps Matt is better known for having started the Charity Series of Poker, the CSOP, in 2014 and running it since then as a grassroots volunteer-based organization. It has since become the premier national series of charity poker tournaments. Today, we'll get to know Matt a little better. Matt Stout, welcome to the Cards Chat Podcast. Thanks for having me. Good. It's good to speak to you. Uh, we were remarking before uh, I hit the record button of like, it's, it feels like we've had quite a number of conversations, but nothing uh, really in-depth to this degree uh, just yet. So I'm looking forward to it. For sure. Same. Cool. Uh, so you know, where and when and why did you start playing poker? Uh, when I was four years old and going on family trips to Illinois, my older sister, uh, taught me how to play five card draw. It was kind of one of the ways I learned how to count and stuff. So it's, uh, it's, uh, it's ingrained in me to say the least. I didn't really like play much poker after that, but it's definitely like one of those absurd family stories where they're like, yeah, we were teaching him to gamble at four. Uh, uh, what's the big deal? And then I remember eighth grade after we finished our curriculum, um, our teachers were just like, Hey, we got nothing for you to do. So sit around and party. And we, we ended up playing, uh, five card draw for like, for change and like candy and stuff. Just, uh, and then I didn't really start playing a lot of poker until I was in college. When I was 19, it was 2004 and Moneymaker Boom hit and everyone on campus just wanted to play poker every night. A uh, buddy of mine hit me up my sophomore year of college, was like, hey, do you play cards? I was like, yeah. He's like, do you want to play some 25, 50 cent limit hold'em? I was like, what the hell is that? I have no <laughs> idea what you're talking about, but I'm a big fan of playing cards. Okay. So let's do it. I went over and played for like six hours or so, made like $4 and 25 cents. And just remember being at the, at Wendy's at like ordering off the value menu with like other people's money feeding me after that. And I was like, wait, so I just got to play poker night and now I get free food out of it. This is nice. Uh, Fast forward within a month or two i'm playing every single game on campus i can possibly get into i'm like one of the biggest winners in the games but there's not enough action so i turned my sights to the internet and you know started being a little more hit on hit or miss on whether or not i made it to class especially my morning classes if i've been playing poker all night yeah um and then eventually ended up losing my job at the campus Barnes and Noble because I played a $3 rebuy on stars that went all night long. And I final tabled it at like eight. I busted at like eight, eight 30 in the morning and had to go to work at nine. Uh-huh. And I just went straight to work, did the first half of my shift went went for my lunch break and just passed out on the couch at my house. while. <laughs> Showed up like 30 minutes before clock out time. My boss is like, yeah, you're fired. I was oh, like, boy. yeah, I'm 
you weren't a big fan of me anyway. Like, right. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, so there's, a, there's a lot to unpack in this. So before before you continue with it, because obviously we're going to continue with your professional journey. Though you did say your answer to your friend there was, "I do play cards." So what other sort of card games did you play growing spades. up? Sorry, spades. I played a lot of spades. Um, that was like we were gambling and playing spades and just in general, like I liked playing war, go fish, like any kind of card game. I was always like playing as a kid. So it was, I also played chess and board games and stuff. So just in general, like I knew for sure, like whatever, as long as whatever card game he wanted to play, wasn't terrible. I was probably going to be interested in it. So it was like, I'm hyper competitive. So I mean, even when it's like hanging out with family, like I want to be playing some kind of games or like competing in some way, talking smack to your friends and family is so much fun. So it's, it's always been like one of my favorite things to do. And uh, yeah, I was, I was for sure in as long as it was some kind of cool game. And I didn't even realize he was talking about poker. That's like, I had never heard of them before. Like I hadn't been watching the moneymaker stuff on TV yet like this was like my introduction where it was like hey why are you not paying attention to poker and I was like oh now I'm listening right (laughs) for sure for sure well you went to college though Uh, you know what did you major in and what did you think you were possibly going to be doing as a profession before uh, poker sunk its hooks into you business and psychology Hmm. and I uh, I didn't have too too much of a plan I was thinking about doing um, an MBA JD after I got out of undergrad, but I was also kind of apprehensive about spending that many years racking up uh, college debt. So I was thinking about doing it part-time while I like got a job somewhere, whatever I was going to be able to do decently well at as, uh, as like an entry-level business position. But that was kind of put on the back burner once I found poker and uh, started to find some success in it at uh it uh, kind of took a weird turn as well because essentially I was doing like one senior year for business, one for psychology. Mm. And in the middle of my first of two senior years, I turned 21 and was back and forth to Atlantic City the entire time. I was studying for finals at the table at Tropicana while playing one to no limit and their nightly tournament. <laughs> Not even kidding. And then I basically turned like whatever, like 500 bucks into eight grand during winter break during like the five or six week break between semesters. And when I got back to school, I was informed that they were missing a signature on one of my student loan paperwork and uh, they hadn't gotten paid for the previous semester and they'd unregistered me for all my classes. Wow. Um, I showed up at their office and was like, and I was like, it was an, it was a state school. I had a partial scholarship. I was living off campus. Like we didn't owe that much. It was was like, we owed like 8k and I could pay like 51% of it and get signed back into my classes. Mm -hmm. So to the complete shock of my, uh, of the office at my college, they tell me I owe like $4,060 and I just reach into my cargo pocket, pull out my entire bankroll and just peel half of it off trying to get back into class. Wow. They took my money. 
they told me to meet with the dean of the business school. Uh, and I had a meeting with him the next day. I went. He did not go. Uh, so I sat around his office for 15 minutes, and then I gave up, went back to my dorm, and was playing poker all night. I <laughs> And this is the days of wired internet. So it wasn't even like I could come back with my laptop later and see right. if he decided to show up. <laughs> I go back the next day, like as soon as the office opens and they inform me he's on vacation for two weeks and that nobody else can sign me back into these 400 level business classes. That you've paid for. I paid for, I had to catch up on the previous semester payment. Okay. So. It was like, they were like, once you pay 51% of the previous semester, we didn't get paid for then we'll let you reg. Mm -hmm. Oh, so I, uh, I gave them half my bankroll and I still couldn't get back into my classes. And I just wandered back to Atlantic city. Once they told me that I was like, um, didn't know what else to do. So we started spinning that $4,000 roll back up. I, uh, that's when I met Farce and I and uh, Ronnie Barda and Chris Jenkins and like the whole Foxwoods crew mm -hmm. started coming down to Atlantic City. I uh, final tabled a couple of the uh, Taj. We, Taj used to have the biggest weekly tournament in Atlantic City. It was like a Saturday 340. I final tabled it once and chopped because I was too scared to play it out, even though I was chip leader with nine left. Uh, <laughs> my role was like back up to 35. 500 from some like other smaller final tables and cash games. And uh, they offered me 7k in the chop. And I was like, I can triple my role. I, uh, I don't know if I really want to risk that, even though I think that I'm better than these players. Uh, triple my role there, come back the next week, final table again, took third for like 3,600 or something. Um, and then the circuit event came to Atlantic City. Uh, three months after I turned 21 in March of 2006, I uh, busted the first 340 or whatever buy-in, played a $75 sit-and-go to get into the 500, ended up chopping that final table with Matt Glantz and a few other guys for 34000 or 32000 Um That was like the score that really launched my career. And then mm -hmm. like... The week after that, they had some $200 rebuys into the, because they used to have 10K circuit main events. Mm -hmm. Then when they started the World Series of Poker Circuit, this might have been the first year of the circuit. Um, and I won two seats into the main, sold one, played the other, free rolling in my first 10K, and like suddenly have like a $50,000 bankroll. Mm -hmm. And once my dad caught wind of this, even though he was a major opponent of me playing poker when he was worried about me, like not having the money as a broke college student, getting myself in trouble. Suddenly his perspective on it shifted from, uh, you shouldn't be doing this to, if you take some time off from school to pursue this, we understand. <laughs> Interesting. So did you tell him so about, uh, about the taking $4,000 and, you know, making those back payments. Was that part of the story? Yeah. He knew about that. Okay. I mean, he knew that like I did my best to try to get back in, but he was talking about like the following semester after sure. that. He's like, sure. you don't need to go back to college now. Like if you can wow. keep making money like this, go do it. <laughs> like, nice. This is like, he saw the opportunity. 
opportunity and he understood that like that I understood something that some other people didn't and that there's edges to be had in this game and he mm-hmm. didn't like he finally got it. At um, what so point, that was big for at me. At what point and, did did it sort of click for you? Meaning you said this is what I want to do with my time and this is how I want to make a living. Uh in that process from 19 to 21 in college, like my sophomore through senior years, it was uh, this evolution from it being like a dream scenario to realizing slowly but surely as I have these scores and I keep going deep in these tournaments and I keep having these good results without too much doubt. Like back then you could play like mediocre poker and have a hundred percent ROI because everyone else was clueless. Like there was no competition. It was incredible stuff. Like even online, like in the mid stakes, the 24 plus twos and the 69 plus sixes on full tilt back in the day. Like that was my bread and butter in college. Um, And there were just so many people that were so clueless and everyone wanted to play. So I wasn't very good. I just, I had a cursory understanding of how to play strategy games in general and try right. to find edges. So just like my background in chess came in handy and just all that, like it, it just slowly, but surely got to the point where I was like, well, I'm not a genius and I don't like know everything about this game, but clearly like there's a lot of money to be made. And if I work really hard at this, I can develop a bigger edge and, it may be possible to do this for a living. It wasn't even like necessarily do it for a living. I kind of just wanted to do it as like side income at first. I wasn't really planning on um, like jumping into playing for a living. I kind of wanted to, uh, to still apply my degrees, start my career. But at some point, like once I was making enough money that I didn't feel like I needed a campus bookstore job, I was like, there's a real possibility that I could just roll with this and then just come back to school eventually or go to grad school if it doesn't work out. Like, I realized that it's not like I'm really giving up that much of an opportunity when, like, it's all going to be waiting there for me. If it doesn't work out in a year or two, no one's going to be like, what's this huge resume, a gap in your resume? That, uh, now, if I got to this point in my career and they were like, what's that 16 year gap in the resume? It's like, oh, I was off the end. Um, that'd be a little trickier to explain, but now I have CSOP for that. Yeah, that's for sure. You got plenty <laughs> else on your resume besides uh, just playing for a living. At what point did uh, it kind of sort of make sense for you to say, hey, maybe uh, the East Coast is not necessarily the best place for my career to flourish. Maybe I got to move to Vegas. Took two years. That was it. I moved here in 2008 when I was 23 years old and I've lived here for 14 years since. Um, it, it honestly nowadays, I wouldn't even necessarily feel like I needed to move. There's enough, there was enough big action and big tournaments and stuff on the East coast now and competition between like the Philly rooms and Borgata that I wouldn't have felt as compelled, but back then, like they didn't have big games and big tournaments that often in Atlantic city at all. Right. It was like the one day. WPT Borgata stop a year, one one circuit stop a year, and that was about it. Um, and then normally the biggest games you're going to find on the average weekend were still like two five. It wasn't like quarter quarter was 
running all the time at Borgata or 1025, whatever they run. Um, they didn't have like bigger games. And it was like, if I wanted to keep moving up in stakes and keep trying to do that, I had to move to Vegas right. at that point. So you had that, um, you know, that strategy games background, as you said, and back in the day, you know, a lot of us do know, uh, even if we haven't become professional players, it was significantly easier to beat the games. Then you go and move to Vegas and all of a sudden the skill level, I imagine, at least among the the regulars is slightly higher. Um, At what point do you sort of say to yourself, hey, maybe I got to hit the book, start studying, talk to my friends and sort of your attitude towards the game as a professional did it shift at what, you know, if at all? No, oh, that started when I was 19. Already was, then you were studying. Yeah. I mean, like I took it very seriously from the mm. beginning. Like I said, like I realized when I was making a little bit of money from the time I was 19 to 21, that like there are edges to be had. And the harder I work at this while everyone else is still not anywhere in terms of strategy, mm-hmm. then that I'm going to benefit. So it was a combination of reading Super System, reading Harrington on Hold'em. And then I was really, really fortunate. And quick shout out to a few people here. Uh, Dustin Dirksen is number one. He uh, was one of the original online 2550 crushers. And he was like playing a $200 sit and go with me one time when I was 19 and in college. We just started chatting it up and we started talking on Skype after that and kind of became a mentor for me and helped me understand like what I needed to do to take the right steps and what I should be traveling for and what games I should be trying to play and how, what my role needs to be to move up. It wasn't even like talking hand histories. It was just like having someone who has an idea of what it takes and, asking them like some questions here and there for guidance. Mark Foss is another one of them. Um, the Australian pro, sure. pro once back in the day. Uh, another guy who like didn't know me a damn thing, but like took me under his wing and was always happy to chat with me. Occasionally it was hand histories, but it was still more of the same, just kind of general mentorship. Uh, so those guys were kind of instrumental to me super early on. And then uh, like once I started uh playing for a living at like 21 a couple people that had been like people that i was like watching play online and like sweating online on poker stars and on full tilt back in the day were shane schlager and Engel, who became two of my good good buddies and two of my like longest standing poker friends so those those are like the the kind of circle around me that i built and then there was another guy uh this guy who came to all of our college stuff he had already graduated a couple of years before but was friends with some of our buddies in college and he just came down and like was final three every single time that we had like a big tournament for the weekend and i started talking hands with that guy and hanging out with him he became one of my best friends it was really sad a few years ago he uh he passed away oh um, i'm so sorry it was like training it's like training for a marathon had like a 50 pound vest on to and like just drop that out of nowhere. Yikes. That's like a wife and two kids. Right? Mm. Mm. Um, so his name was Dave Cho. That was mm-hmm. my like original buddy. And we would just bounce hands off each other. And it was kind of funny because there was like this, this shift where like it's, he started out as my mentor, but then like he was still just playing recreationally from time uh-huh. to time. And like, I became his mentor as I started playing for a living. So it was cool to have him start coming to me, asking me about hands. Like, Oh, what do you think I did wrong here? Like, this is weird. Right. <laughs> but yeah, those, 
my circle early on and the books that I read. And I just kind of went from there and just was always trying to learn everything I could, talking hands with anyone who I thought was decent at the game and just picking each other's brains a lot and just trying to find ways to exploit, exploit, exploit. <laughs> nice. Nice. I like it. Well, you know, you look at your hand in mob and you're, you know, I looked right now just to check again, make sure it hadn't changed 368th all time. Now, okay, so it's not top 10 or anything or top 20, but like almost $4.3 million in career tournament earnings. You, you know, you can say that, you know, quite easily, quite, quite, uh, you know, confidently, comfortably, you know, one of the top four or 500 people in the entire world, you know, playing this game. That's pretty cool. And I looked at it, you got almost 300 caches uh, to your credit from all the way back then, you know, excuse me, after you turned 21. And I'm like, it's almost like you did this the old fashioned way. There was no like major marquee, you know, seven figure score or something like that. You know, it's like grinding and succeeding consistently year after year. That's something I love and I admire. I think that's a really cool thing, uh, you know, you know, props to you. At what point does, you know, you said you were looking to move up in stakes and that sort of a thing. Is that still a thing for you? Or are you kind of like happy at the level that you're at right now, stakes wise, what you're playing? Yeah, I I appreciate the kind words. And it was, it was definitely um, my goal to kind of play the highest stakes back then. But the, the highest stakes back then were like the 10Ks and 15Ks mm-hmm. and the W. WBT 25K championship. Right. So those all had value. And like nowadays, it's like competing at the highest stakes just means like uh, a lot of battling with like the best players in the world and a lot of ego driven, small edge, sell a lot of yourself and play for small percentages. Like I don't see much value in that. And also, my life has shifted a lot. I have a three year old boy. I have uh, guardianship of my soon-to-be ex-wife's three little sisters with her. Um, we So I, I have four kids, and I, I'm playing more PLO cash now just for stability, for flexibility of schedule. I have to, when you said PLO and stability, I can't help but laugh. I'm sorry. Okay, let me put this in perspective for you, <laughs> okay. Ronnie. For the first, and this is something that actually goes back to what you just said about uh-huh. the consistency of the tournament scores. Thank God they were cons- like, and if you actually put them side by side, you would see anytime I downswung online uh, or live, I would upswing on uh, the other one. And uh-huh. vice versa. I played no joke, 95 plus percent tournaments only for the first, I don't know, 12 years of wow. my career. Wow. Like I did, I never liked cash games. I did not enjoy them at all. So I put no focus on them and I just went all in on tournaments. And when I was 22, I started getting back by Cliff Josephy. So it kind of gave me the ability from an early, earlier age to just start firing whatever I wanted to fire. Like I found like while I was 21, I still like, I didn't lose my role and start getting back, but like I didn't get my role past a hundred K while I was 21. Like, uh, I also understood bankroll management enough to realize that I shouldn't be buying into 5Ks and 10Ks with a 100K right. roll. And I thought that I was just going to get back and print a million dollars and start playing 10Ks for myself. 
wasn't exactly that easy. That right. was, as you see from the head of mod, there's the upswings, the downswings, the grinds, the, sure. the quarter million dollar scores, followed by some mediocre caches, you know, like, um, so it was, I forgot where I was going with this, um, <laughs> but <laughs> stability in uh, PLO cash games. Like, yeah, that was also another big thing for me in that, um, it, it was like, even though I run it once in PLO too. So like okay. uh, I, I bring on, but we're like even running it once in PLO cash, the, 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 the swings are absolutely nothing like MTTs. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had, I had one year where I had my banner year for actual net profit for myself, backing situations aside. Yeah. And then I made one twelfth of that the following year. Wow. Like one, <laughs> like and the tournament it, grinders life. Yeah. But if you take the two and average it out, it was still two of my better years overall because I right. killed. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and so it's a good thing that I was like nitty about. I'm, I'm just a life knit. Like I'm very careful about, you know, making big purchases and mm-hmm. things. Like I, I always expect the downswing to be coming. I try try to live with that mentality of not knowing when the next check is coming, but PLO uh, is far less swingy. And it's also like one time I found myself emailing the three of uh, the CEO of three square food bank. This is the highest ranking that nonprofit person in all of Vegas. It's the highest paid position, like the most important of any nonprofit person in Vegas. And I had to tell him that there was a 10% chance I was going to have to cancel our dinner plans if I was on day three of the tournament. <laughs> like, what am I doing? This is ridiculous. This guy is far more important than me. And, <laughs> and I'm telling him, like, yeah, I might have to bail on you at the last second. Right. It was cool about it, but I was like, that was one of the things that I started thinking, like, you know, maybe playing cash wouldn't be such a terrible thing. I also have been working hard on my PLO game for years and really enjoy the game more than I enjoy No Limit now. So as much as I'm not a big fan of cash games, it's still, uh, if I want to play a lot of PLO, there's not enough PLO tournaments, I'm going to have to play cash. I like that. I like that perspective. It's very refreshing also, you know, like having experienced that full-time tournament grind for so long and, uh, you know, a newfound appreciation that, yeah, you know, cash games, no matter how, a much variance there may be in PLO could uh, offer uh, some sort of uh, relative stability. I, I hear that. Um, you know, so what I want to ask you, there was a question in there. Um, ooh, I don't want to get it. Uh, I, oh, right. Okay. So you're talking about being a life knit, you know, conservative bank riot wise, that sort of a thing. So it would seem from that, you know, one could conclude that your goal is just to make sure that you can have that stability, that you can make a comfortable living, you know, do your thing, play the games that you want to play. How about, though, those tournament accolades? You know, we mentioned at the outset, you got seven WSOP circuit rings. Is jewelry important to you? Are trophies important to you? Or does that really all fall sort of secondarily to the fact that you want to and get to remain a professional poker player? Uh, definitely secondary, but it's, I mean, I would, I would rank winning a bracelet as one of my life goals for sure, but that's still secondary, not only to the concept of 
playing poker for a living, but like having the ability to do what I want to do and Mm. enjoy what I do for a living and to not have to work for anyone else to not have to. Yeah. There's just, there's so much freedom to it and I'm doing something I absolutely love. It's a grind some days for sure. Like it's not, there's going to be those days where it's like, well, I should probably go grind cash, even though I'm not necessarily in the mood. Like that's occasionally going to happen. Like I went camping in Zion for a couple of days last week to get over like the world series of poker stress. And I found myself on the drive back to Vegas, like driving home at one, planning on getting back at two 30 or three legitimately going, I might go late reg the 600 at Venetian when I get back. Like (laughs) I love the game so much that even when I'm trying to like decompress, get away from it, like I find myself like jonesing for it. Like I will crave poker go a few days without it. Like it's sick. (laughs) So many years later. Yeah. So many years later, tens of thousands or like millions of hands, tens of thousands of hours. And I still just crave it like a drug. And that's one of the things I love actually about, you know, getting to host this podcast is I get to talk to people who love the game just as much as I do. It's wonderful. And I'm sure that's uh, something that folks, you know, uh, in the Cars Chat community listening or watching uh, the podcast are like, yeah, yeah, we love it too. That's, that's, that's what it's all about. That's, that's pretty cool. Um, you know, you talk about having the freedom to do whatever you want. And that's obviously a, a wonderful big time blessing in life. Do you have any sort of routine or day-to-day things, or is it really just, okay, let's see what I want to do today. Or is it just, you know, wake up, check Bravo poker Atlas, see what games are good. I wish it was that simple now. Uh, I, have my son half the time in the morning. I usually get up with him six, seven o'clock in the morning when I do uh, take him to the pool, hang out with him all morning, make breakfast for him. Like my routine is generally uh, aside from that, like weekdays, especially Monday through Thursday, 10 to six while, um, while uh, SKC agency, the company that does all the marketing and basically all the actual work for CSOP while on the face of it. Um, they, uh, it's a digital marketing and advertising agency. That's where I am now. I'm, I'm at my office here okay. and there's a team of about 12 people over to my right in the pit who are amazing and do everything we need that we have. I, I need to get into what CSOP is. Before yeah. That, that's actually my next question. So we probably should backtrack a bit. Okay. Um, but so like 10 to six, I'm, I'm generally at the office here. And then whenever I finish my meetings for the day and finish answering questions for my staff and doing what I need to do to get new events rolling and get them marketed, I, I'm a five minute drive from Aria. I go play five, five, 10 PLO usually like in the afternoon into the evening, uh, depending on the schedule and everything. I, I also try to, you know, get home and have dinner with my nephew and my son and, sure. uh, starting to play ice hockey again, but in general, it's kind of like a, an influx thing between like playing online poker on Sundays all day. And then like weekdays trying to kind of play some cash, get some CSOP stuff done. And Saturdays is usually family time. Friday just depends. Like I'll either play cash and come to the office or sometimes play tournaments. If there's a good tournament going that weekend in Vegas, but that was what I, I didn't get back to earlier was like with tournaments now, like they're, 
they're great and I love them and I want to play them sometimes, but it's now secondary to Mm -hmm. making sure that I'm, you know, serving our beneficiaries properly to getting enough cash game hours. And if I have the time to play a good value tournament, I definitely will. Mostly like 1K to 5K is with like the exceptions of like the win millions is going to be a great 10K. WP to Bellagio is usually a pretty good 10K. I'll fire any of the good 10Ks. I'll like, if I think a 25K is going to be really good, I'll fire that too. But I don't think there's that many good value 25Ks now right. as like the competition has gotten tougher and tougher over the years. That's sort of where I'm at with tournaments is like, the 1500 to 5K that have good value, that's where those are the price points I kind of want to be at if I'm playing. Cool. Uh, well, we definitely got to you know jump into that CSOP. Uh, of course, you know people who are watching. If you're just listening, Matt's got the CSOP background uh, behind him. So we'll just sort of start out with like what you know. You are the founder of the organization Charity Series of Poker. What made you decide you know beyond your love for the game and wanting to play it and you know do it for a living of having some sort of a charitable element and, and doing for, and, and, you know, for others. That actually goes back to my pre poker for a living days. I, uh, my biggest positive influence in my life, I kind of find myself at a crossroads where I had like two older brothers <laughs> as, as kid Cuddy put it, I got two older brothers, one hood, one good. Um, so one of them was just, studying as hard as he could taking all the honors classes ap classes like we grew up like somewhat poor in um in a town right outside new york city bayonne new jersey it's uh it borders jersey city newark staten island and manhattan it's kind of a crap hole um it's where they stick the oil refineries we would have had nice white sandy beaches but they decided to stick oil refineries there instead so uh, we get what we get. Um, everyone's goal is to get out of Bayonne growing up, and some do, some don't. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's like, what do you want to do when you grow up? Get out of Bayonne. Like, that is most of the people's answer. Um, I guess this is the point so, of the podcast. I should tell you that 94% of our audience is from Bayonne, New Jersey. <laughs> so, shout out, New Jersey. We love you. We love you. They're, they're probably happy to crap on it, too. They're probably like, we're all style at this point um but (laughs) so basically uh now that i'm done crapping on my hometown uh my one older brother was mm, selling drugs and just doing terrible things with his life and then the other brother was studying really hard and trying to get into a good school Mm. and when i was a sophomore he was a senior and he got into Johns Hopkins and I was like, Oh my God, I'm going to look like a complete idiot going to community college. I'm so competitive, especially with my brothers that like, I was like, Oh boy, this is, this one's going to be tough to top, but uh, I'm probably going to have to turn around the 78 average that I have right now. (laughs) Um, So junior and senior year, I like turned around my entire life um, and started getting straight A's working on trying to get into a good school and during that time, my brother became the president of Habitat for Humanity at Johns Hopkins. And I was visiting him here and there and got to see a lot of the good work that Habitat was doing in Sandtown, Baltimore, which is one of the worst ghettos I've ever seen. Um, and I had kind of that realization that, like, I didn't have it as bad as I thought after mm-hmm. I saw Sandtown. Wanted to help give back. But it's also, like, coming from a place of, like, 
knowing what it's like to struggle and wanting to help people that are in an even worse situation than we were. Mm-hmm. So I ended up becoming the vice president of Habitat for Humanity at my college. And that was junior year, right after I had started playing in my sophomore year. Right. So during a meeting, they were like, how are we going to raise funds this semester? And I like tongue in cheek go, I'm going to run a charity poker event, thinking there's no way the administration is going to allow this. And I'm going to get arrested if I try. <laughs> I start poking around, begging, and and they're like, yeah, as long as like you're not paying out cash and right. you get donated prizes and all the money goes straight to Habitat, it's fine. I was like, really? So I managed to buy the chips, buy the cards, get some donated prizes, flat screen TV, some Best Buy gift certificates. The uh, the company my dad worked for, the owner was happy to help. And we did a $10 rebuy fundraiser in the dorms and raised over a thousand bucks with a bunch of broke college students. Awesome. So considered awesome. a pretty big success if you can get over a grand out of broke college kids. That yep. is not an easy task. Uh, and so I started playing poker for a living as we got into the following year when I found out that my school had screwed me. Um, and when I started playing for a living, it was like in the back of my mind, it's something that I really wanted to do to be mm. able to give back. And I, I kind of wanted to start it earlier. I started playing for a living in 06 and didn't, wasn't able to start CSOP until 2014. Right. When I moved to Vegas, my, it was, like I was slowly getting to the point where I was ready. I bought a house in December, 2010. And in 2011, I was like, all right, now's the time. Like I'm, I'm settled down. Like this is my home base. I can establish my roots here and start running events here. And, uh, and then in April of 2011, I was thinking he's going to talk about black Friday. (laughs) In April of 2011, the U S department of justice decided that after the world series of poker a couple months from then that i should move to costa rica Uh i had no say in the decision but it it worked out well for me i lived in costa and bounced back and forth between costa rica and europe a lot for a while and i almost died in an earthquake in 2012 in costa i mean it was a 7.6 on the Richter scale, one of like the top five biggest for the year, I think. And I was on the 14th floor of a 16 story building built to Costa Rican building standards. It was, I found out later that it's supposedly built to withstand an 8.0. So we got four tenths of a point away from the building uh-huh. snapping. Uh, I could, could definitely tell the building was getting very close. It was violently going several feet back and forth. Um, and I decided to leave Costa Rica after that. Okay. Um, yeah. Woke I up that. to that one day during the world champion, my poker. Um, and then took that day off from W Coop. But the next day I fired W Coop and we had aftershock earthquakes while I was nine tabling. And I was like, I'm not built for this. Right. I, I grew up in Jersey. We're not used to these earthquakes. I'm out of here. I literally booked a flight to Amsterdam and moved there overnight. Wow. Um <laughs> The next morning, I had a friend staying there. He was like, yeah, you can come stay with me. And I was staying with friends. That time, I was just crashing with friends who had rented a place. So I had no ties to it. I was just like, oh, let's see how much of my stuff I can pack in two suitcases. And we're moving to Europe. Nine o'clock the next morning. <laughs> Didn't even sleep. Like Finished my online session, packed, and went to the airport. Um, so I lived out there for like eight months and bounced around to EPT and stuff but eventually 2014 moved back to the u.s was dating a girl who lived here so that was 
that was the time when I finally got it going. July of July 6, 2014 was the first ever CSOP event. Um, it was a $300 with $100 rebuys for Three Square Food Bank. And uh, we almost had reigning champ Ryan Reese win the event. But my friend Andrew Brown, who taught me PLO, won it instead and beat him heads up. And we didn't even realize until we were all hanging out after how terrible that was for the marketing efforts of CSOP <laughs> that he had lost that hands on match as an afterthought. We were like, wait, that would have been really good if you had just lost Andrew. <laughs> but so we raised 15 grand for three square food bank at a band. And the CEO called me a few days later and he told me that he was so appreciative and what a great job we did. And I told him, that I appreciated the kind words, but I was disappointed because I thought that we were going to raise at least 25 K with the event and that I was going to do better next year. There you go. And he laughed at me and told me that I was crazy. He laughed at me and told me that I was crazy. And, uh, the following year we raised 43 K for the food bank and Amazing. he called me again to tell me that he no longer thought I was crazy <laughs> and he wanted to do dinner to talk about how we could grow. Uh, so I knew I was on to something obviously. And, Basically, for the first three years, it was just grassroots volunteer, and we were spending 20 grand of my money and 15 grand of my friend's money overall. And that's all it cost us to run the first 12 events. And all the money went straight to the beneficiaries. We didn't even try to recoup those expenses. Wow. Those events raised $350,000 for three square and food banks. Wow. And the last one was Joe DiMaggio Children's Hospital in Florida. Beautiful. Borgata and Hard Rock like have been so instrumental to us, like hard rock Hollywood in Florida. It's one of the reasons I'm flying there tomorrow to play the event. They, they went above and beyond helping to market our events, promote them, fly in celebrities and like really show me how it's done. Uh, Borgata was amazing as well. Like both of those venues were giving us free food and beverage for our receptions, just eating the entire bill. And they just, could not have been more helpful and or more supportive of our beneficiaries in my vision. So that's, you know, that's incredible. Just like, you know, with anything in life, once you pack the snowball together, it starts rolling downhill. You just, you get going, you're in the zone. Okay. We've done it before. We know how to do it bigger, better, all that stuff, but packing that, you know, to, you know, extend the metaphor a little bit to pack that snowball together initially, like, what did you know about setting up a charity and running charity events? Like, how did you figure it out? So much less than I thought I did, Robbie. I uh, <laughs> I was clueless. And I thought that I was just going to have this idea, have the, have the casino run it, and that it was going to be successful on its own. And I... I found out I was clueless and I faked it till I made it. And okay. I just, uh, I had to learn ops. I had to learn management. I had to learn marketing. I didn't know any of this. I, I, had, I knew what I had learned in textbooks in college mm -hmm. and pretty much nothing beyond that. So wow. it was a fun exercise in just working it through, figuring out what works, what doesn't, and just, learning from people who did it better than I did and the people that came before me, like, wow. uh, and <laughs> that reminds me of when I met Mac for standing, who uh, is now our counsel for the, the series at one point over dinner, he's like, okay, so how much of this has been you being like the hype man for CSOP versus you putting it all together? I was like, 
for the first three years, like we didn't have much outside help. That was before Lexi Gavin became my first vice president and helped started taking some of the work off my plate. But it was like Mike Frazen and Matt Savage were two people on my board of directors that helped me a ton. Um, but they were more there as like counsel and for backup and for support and to answer questions if I wasn't sure on something. But it was really kind of up to me in the beginning to like make it all work and mm-hmm. figure things out with the the venue and everything. So I told him that and he was like, my God, you're a savant. <laughs> was like, <laughs> that was one of the biggest compliments I've ever gotten because uh, Mac is Mac is a genius. Yes, and he is. Confirmed. I was I was very uh, I was very honored. Uh, I won't say humble because it's one of those spots where people say humble and don't mean it. Mm. Uh, but yeah, that that comment meant a lot. Like that's one of the ones that like when things are tough with CSOP, like I think of that comment and it helps give me extra motivation. That's awesome. So you know, I want to talk a little bit more about the CSOP events, but you know, now you have done it. I'm not you know saying, okay, someone else out there wants to have a competing thing, but there are a lot of poker players out there who do want, you know, to do more for charity, maybe even something small from all of the experience, you know, you have, and that you've gathered from, you know, now you, now you've got it, you know, now, now you would be able to impart wisdom. You know, I'd say, you know, one way to ask is like, well, what would you do over differently? But, you know, you, you had the road you did, you made the mistakes you did, and that made you, you know, as competent and successful uh, as you are today at running the ship at CSOP with your team. You know, let's say folks want to get into it and want to start it on their own. Well, you're, you're the guy, you know what to do. What sort of advice would you give them? Maybe top three tips or something. Uh Build a committee. Uh, that was one of the biggest things that I thought we would be able to do it on our own with the help of the beneficiary. But when you have like a group of people that are dedicated to that event, that event only, they're not bogged down. Like for me, I'm bogged down with 10 CSOP events a year and the food bank's busy running all their programs. So having uh, a group of people that really want to make this event a success and are going to be out there in the community working their connections, getting people to show up, connecting with sponsors. And that's like a, a big piece is the sponsorship piece is finding companies, whether it's cash or in-kind donors that are going to support the event year after year and going from there. And then also just uh, utilizing silent auctions and raffles. There's so many ways to raise is that, uh, we were only using the poker tournament at first, and we didn't realize what an opportunity we were missing to um, to set up a silent auction, get a lot of because it's way easier to get people to donate items than it is to donate cash. Sure. So, but you could the turnaround on that is like you just set up a silent auction with a ton of stuff that you haven't paid a dime for, like, um, and then it's an infinite ROI, and it's just a bunch of icing on the cake on top of whatever the prize pool ends up raising. Uh, 50-50 raffles are also good. I mean, going through the regulatory issues state by state is where we come in and why um, why we're able to, like, <laughs> you did the you said something a lot about, about people trying to, like, compete with us, not that they would. It's like we, we've kind of set this up as cheaply as we possibly can to the point where we just charge a flat fee to our beneficiaries now and just manage everything soup to nuts. So all they have to do is provide silent auction items, sell tickets, sell sponsorships and show up. Amazing. And we just, 
I vertically integrated so that we have Stripe processing on the back end of our website set up in such a way that it's gaming compliant, where if you go to our website and buy in for an event benefiting food, a three square food bank, the money doesn't go to CSOP. It's going straight to three square food bank Stripe account. And we have to do things in a way where the game control board approves of it. And now we've even, uh, Gorilla Gaming has been an amazing partner to us and just hooked us up with a ridiculous discount so that we could get 20 tables, 8,000 chips, run our own operations. And now we're wow. a game vendor of services and we That's hire. Super staff. cool. So now rake is capped to $20 per person instead of 30, 40, one, ben- oh, I won't even say the casino, but one tried to charge us 65 per person for a charity event. Um, so needless to say, being able to vertically integrate, get any uh, for profits out of the way, like we used to use gift smart for the silent auction and stuff where we've gotten away from that and are wasting as little money as possible to get things set up as effectively as possible. So that kind of, that kind of gets into when it changed, like originally it was me spending my own money, volunteering all the time. And then Lexi volunteering, um, in 2017, we did an event at Hard Rock Hollywood um, because Hard Rock is so amazing to us that Daniel Negreanu was tricked into thinking it was all me and asked me to take over his St. Jude event. Uh-huh, um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So we raised like 140K for Joe DiMaggio Children's Hospital, had over 300 entrants, and it was like blowing up all over social media. Everyone was having a blast and everyone was posting about it. So I get a text from Daniel in the middle of that event, like, hey, great job down there. I want you to take over the St. Jude event. I'm like, what? (laughs) It's Daniel. It's St. Jude. Like, I... I've wanted to be involved in that event forever. And I had actually, I don't even know if he had, he remembers that like a year before that, I asked him if I could get involved with it. I didn't care if it was CSOP event or whatever. Like I wanted to support it. And he just hits me up like out of nowhere, like, Oh, please take it over. I'm like, uh, done. First order of business, Daniel, why aren't the golden Knights sponsoring your event? (laughs) He has six, season tickets he knows the owner how is this not already on the table <laughs> so I, t- I say that to him and he's like good point he hits me back two days later he's like so I talked to the Golden Knights and they want to sponsor the event for several thousand dollars but they also want to run their own charity poker tournaments and they don't know how so they want to talk to you I was like what right? yeah just say say that again amazing <laughs> I grew up playing hockey. I was a season ticket holder with the tickets right next to Daniel's 11 rows behind the visitor bench. Like I'm pretty diehard about the game. I was blown away by this. I, I don't get nervous for WPT final tables, WSOP final tables, life-changing money. I got nervous for this meeting. Like I've never been nervous for anything. Uh, and then I meet the president of the Knights foundation and he's like, Super nice guy, also from Jersey. We hit it off immediately. 30 minutes into the meeting, he's like, all right, so we want you to do one or two events a year for the Golden Knights Foundation, but we also have a sister charity, Folded Flag Foundation, that we also run. It's mm-hmm. uh, It was set up by the owner of the Knights to support the families of fallen soldiers, mm-hmm. and 100% of public donations go straight to so- the scholarships because wow. he underwrites it with all his other companies. Sure. Um, so it's pretty awesome uh, charity. I was more than happy to support that as well. And we started doing events. Uh, we had one in California, one in Reno. Um, 
think we did one in Vegas as well. We And like just the ball got rolling immediately and I was getting asked left and right to do more and more events, especially once you do one with the Golden Knights, everyone's going to ask you. Yeah, so of course. that's the point where we came up with a set fee per event that we charge and it's just a flat fee and then all net proceeds go to the charity. Amazing. That is when it kind of took over my life and it was like, all right, like I could have done the St. Jude event as a volunteer. Like I was already volunteering hundreds of hours a year and spending a bunch of my own money. Like I was still going to take on the St. Jude event as a volunteer, but once it was like, Hey, we need you to do three or four more events a year on top of all those. It's like, this is going to be a job now, isn't it? Right. (laughs) So that, uh, then, you know, Lexi Gavin was helping me along the way as the vice president. And then, she eventually wanted to step down and work on more of her coaching stuff and her YouTube channel and mm-hmm. all that. So conveniently enough, a guy final table, the golden Knights foundation event, and he runs the company I'm working out of now. Um, SKC agency It's a digital marketing and advertising agency where they have uh, a whole staff that handles the website, the sure. media, email marketing, everything for, 30 different companies or something. It's pretty um, incredible what it's grown into from that first, oh, yeah, sure, let's run the $10 rebuying college. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's an even more absurd way to look at it. I just look at it as how crazy and far it's come from like the, sure, let's get Planet Hollywood to help us set up uh, an event for Three Square Food Bank. Like, right. I didn't even have the presence of mind to do a silent auction. Fortunately, three square was like, we're going to bring some stock and auction it off. I was like, that seems like a good idea. Nice. Uh, we didn't have food and beverage covered. It was just casino staff. Now, like it, it's developed into like having catering contracts and making sure that we have this huge staff for the event. We, now we run ops ourselves. We have to have the U-Haul truck prepared with all the equipment and and make sure we have enough dealers to staff the tables. Everything has come so, so far and it's been, uh, it's been a real amazing and rewarding experience. And I've learned so much about business and about myself in the process. That's huge. It's it's absolutely fantastic. It's such a great story uh, of the charity, like really, like just how, how it, you know, we said it's a, a grassroots organization, but it's evolved into this well-oiled machine. I'm just kind of curious, let's say, you know, in terms of the process, you know, someone calls you up and says, okay, you know, say, uh, you know, the first of the month, say, you know, Matt, we'd like to run an event, right? And, you know, it's almost like a turnkey solution at this point. How long does it take for you guys to spring into action, get everything in order, and you could say, okay, the earliest possible date we could do your event is? Uh, I try to have like three or four months lead time so that they could sell tickets and stuff. Mm -hmm. But if they come to me and are like, okay, we have a venue, we have the venue contract, and now we want to sign with you to have you manage this entire event right i will set up a i will set up a call to go through this egregiously long spreadsheet that we have developed over the years with every possible piece of information that my staff could ever need to make everything from the website to the flyers to the decks to the like uh, everything that like goes into any piece of our collateral um, or our operations or whatever. We, there's basically 75 lines of information um, and then a giant list of 
event sponsors, the, the list of who we're going to have staff different roles, the prizes that we're going to go through, like the list of events. We have like 22 items that are pre-committed and donated to every event because our sponsors are so amazing that we don't even have to hit them up. Like Brad Garrett uh, ha has a comedy club here yeah. and he does two VIP tickets and a meet and greet with him before the show Amazing um, for every event that we can auction off. We have three hours of Mac for standings, legal services, a $500 Lake Las Vegas water sports gift certificate, autograph pucks from the NHL players that come out to our events, autograph Jason masks from the guy, the actor who plays Jason in a bunch That's... of the movies who loves coming to our events. Wow. Uh, yeah. Like, Tahoe Wake Buster, Jared Mingini is a poker player from the Tahoe area and he donates a bunch of $600 gift certificates to go rent boats on Lake Tahoe. Phenomenal. Uh, wow. Las Vegas ATV tours donates a uh, two hour guided tour for two for every one of our events. Uh, the creator of the board game Ticket to Ride. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Absolutely. It's a great game. Oh I'm obsessed. And Alan Moon is now my friend. It's very ah, sweet. <laughs> That's so cool. Wonderful family game. I enjoy that with my kids a lot. Yeah. For anyone listening to this and enjoys board games, if you don't know about Ticket to Ride, you can download the app and try it. You can buy it at Walmart, Target. Um, the, the creator of it is the nicest guy in the world, too. Someone connected us. Eric Ramsey hmm. uh, used to live in the same apartment building with him. And oh, he wow. knew that I knew that I already knew that Alan comes to the world series of poker every year and plays some poker. Um, and it, Eric was like, Oh yeah, I'll, uh, I'll send an email intro and we've become friends. And now he come, he came to our three square food bank event last month and played and was one of the bounties. And uh, he also donated like, he sent me like uh, cases and cases of like the USA version, the Europe version, the 1910 expansion. Yeah. Pack. yeah. So we have a whole ticket to ride board game bundle that's that's so cool one of the things now and then when we a lot of times i'll buy a bunch of like uh golden knights jerseys have the player autograph them we'll just keep like 10 of those in storage and auction those off so we have a whole list of like things for the silent auction spreadsheet going through all the prizes so basically i go through this ridiculous spreadsheet of every possible detail for any aspect of the tournament takes me like 90 minutes at least to go through it, it sure is like but it's a big it's a big thing it's a big event part of the process yeah, I did one this morning with United Way of Southern Nevada. We're doing an event with them on October 30th at Moon Night Club, which is going to be like a Halloween party. So costumes are highly encouraged instead of business casual. And then I have another one uh, in an hour and a half with uh, Families for Effective Autism Treatment. That's kind of a funny story. Not funny, but um, I started doing an event with them in 2020 and... Uh, became friendly with this group of the autism dads in town because they do a $10 sit and go on Monday nights and like get on zoom and I'll chat. And it's like their big social thing of the week and they wanted me to come play it. So I played with them a few times, became friendly with all the dads from it and then found out my son has autism. Uh, so it, uh, I was already pretty well networked in. I was right, like, well, right. this would be a little more support network already built in for this right uh, but uh it's it was definitely a, an interesting one so i have a meeting with the uh, alan the, this guy is like santa claus in real life uh <laughs> he's one of the nicest guys i've ever met i got a call with him to 
do the info sheet for our November 11th event for families for effective autism treatment. Amazing. So basically once we go through this info sheet, I pass that on to my staff and within a few days we have the website, the flyers, the decks, it's up on the website with registration available via Stripe on the back end. And, uh, my staff's amazing. It's been uh, a process of, you know, working in an office for the first time in my life and right. training all these people. And, like, it's been a very, very fun and rewarding experience. And it's nice to kind of feel like we, we finally have a dialed in where we've done it so, so many times. And I'm actually, I'm looking at the info sheet template right now because I have this, I keep this up at all times because there's always something that we can do better and another piece of information we can add or something that we can change just to make things run more smoothly. And I mean, every, I've done 38 events and yep. yet still making notes every event on the fly. Like, okay, we can do this better. We should have this piece of equipment. We should have a person to do this specific task, like whatever it is, like we're, we're always learning and always trying to streamline it and make it easier. So to answer the question is like, uh, we are taking on more and more clients and trying to make this as easy as possible for my staff. We're mostly doing events right now. Um, Hard Rock Hollywood, we're about to start doing events with them again, probably starting in January. Um, we also have done a bunch uh, out here, obviously in Vegas, in Reno, Southern California as well. So, and I'm also interested in doing some in Arizona, basically like anywhere where we can drive the equipment and keep it cost effective right. so that we can run our own operations and keep it vertically integrated and keep it as cheap as possible for the beneficiary in terms of expenses. Um, we're, so we're doing a lot in the Southwest, but I'm happy to expand to other areas as well. Basically, um, I just kind of vet and talk to my board of directors when necessary about each of the beneficiaries and make sure that they have good marks on uh, Charity Navigator and GuideStar are two really good uh, websites. Depending on the size of the charity, they'll usually be on one or the other. And that gives you a lot of metrics about their financial, like how effective they are or how financially responsible they are, how transparent they are, um, all of that. So right. we just kind of... Make sure that they're good beneficiaries. But anytime someone comes to me like, hey, I want to head a committee and start doing an event in this town for this charity, as long as it's a good charity, I'm going to do my best to make it possible as long as we can work with Mac to get through the the legal side of it and make sure that we do everything in a gaming compliant way. For sure. I just have one more question before we move into the uh, community questions segment of the show. You know, you've spoken uh, at length and with such deep passion. I love it. You know, it's just like, I would say almost more, probably even more passion than about playing the game itself, about how you say it's taken over your life and it's a job, but it's clearly a labor of love, something you love doing. You know, all of this back-end work, your team, yourself, you know, meeting with everybody, eventually, you know, for each event comes you know, the shuffle up and deal time and you get on the mic, you're all dressed up to the nines and, you know, you, you begin, you know, the, the night is about to begin. Can you describe that feeling of, you know, the, the, the peak, so to speak of when everything sort of comes together, everyone's all you know, dressed up nice and, you know, the, the, the poker's about to begin. What does that feel like for you? Ah, 
It's amazing. It's it's the culmination of like all the work and everything I've done. There's part of me that can't fully enjoy it until the rebuy period is over because I know that <laughs> we have to get into like the most chaotic two hours of making sure everyone's served, everything's accounted for properly, all the cash is where it's supposed to be. There's, right. there's a lot to worry about. Um, but it's definitely like uh it's such a great feeling for me it's more like after the rebuy period is over is when i finally like get to go ah this is amazing we raised this much like mm. this beneficiary is going to be able to do x y and z with it and it's also just the people that show up for these events uh a lot of them are already my best friends a lot of them have become my best friends over the years because like that kind of support means so much to me and like it's always like the best people in the poker community too. Like the scumbags are never going to show up to support three square food bank and the kids of St. Jude. So, you know, like those are weeded out by default. I know. (laughs) I pretend that there isn't that element of the poker community. I love poker. I love the people in it, but we definitely have our fair share of crappy people, just like any other industry. But I mean, those people just aren't going to show up ever. Right. why would they? They don't want to support great things for great causes, so they're not going to be there. And the people that you get to interact with, you get to see the best side of the best people in the poker community. Beautiful. That's wonderful. And as you said, you know, you as much work as you do, you are the the face of that wonderful organization, CSOP. Um, you know, yeah, that, you know, quite frankly is, you know, a, a primary wonderful marquee example of the best that poker has to offer. And, uh, you know, I guess that's uh, one of the reasons the good folks here in Cards Chat uh, wanted to have you on the podcast to begin with. So a uh, good segue to turn to the segment of our show uh, where we turn to the Cards Chat community to see what questions you guys wanted to ask our guests. And of course, we do have a dedicated thread on the Cards Chat forums for this. So as we announce who our future guests will be, please be sure to send in your questions. Uh, Shells has one for you, Matt, uh, and wants to know, okay, I like this one. Aside from your own charity poker tournaments, which tournaments do you look forward to most? Hard Rock Hollywood and Borgata. Borgata, hopefully they come back. And this isn't just, I know I already said that they were amazing and instrumental to us in terms of growing CSOP, but uh, Hard Rock Hollywood has just done an absolutely phenomenal job of becoming like the premier poker destination. Like the World Series of Poker is bigger, but like not better. Like I love a lot of the people at the World Series of Poker and I have a lot of admiration for the ability of them to run such a massive event. Like I lose my mind trying to run tournaments of 100 to 300 people. So I have like an excessive fascination, appreciation, and respect for people that put on events that are thousands and thousands of people, even like sporting events and stuff. Like I love looking at the logistics of how they make it run smoothly mm-hmm. and like see what I can apply to my events. Um, so, but like hard rock, like the location, the people, the vibe in general is just absolutely incredible. It's my favorite place ever to play poker. Um, the win is like another place that like has done an amazing job. Like they, it's probably the nicest poker room in the world. They do everything. I got to say perfectly. Like I don't, I just don't find complaints about the win. Like little minor pet peeves. I have minor irritations and pet peeves for the most part with like 
hard rock in the wind. They're just absolutely incredible places to play poker. And hopefully Bar- uh, Borgata comes back as well because that's kind of like my home casino and I love them to death. I definitely miss those massive, massive tournaments. <laughs> great question from Shells and Shells, uh, a great answer, obviously, from you, Matt. Uh, Shells wants to know uh, two more uh, interesting things about you. Who is your poker hero? Uh, the first person that came to mind is Eric Seidel. Oh. Um, I mean, Negranu is definitely one of them and has been like so instrumental to my growth in the nonprofit space and mm-hmm. like has like vouched for me all over the place, like and done incredible things for me in my career. But Seidel is also one that came to mind because I have such admiration for his ability to like so good forever and then just also proved himself to be like better than a lot of these up and coming super high roller guys that were supposedly so much better than K's and 250 K's and stuff. Right. Well, good answer. They're interesting choice. And I like the way that, uh, you know, your, your rationale, your reasoning for it. Good stuff. Um, and last one from shells, uh, Matt, what actor would you choose to play you in your biopic? <laughs> the first person that came to mind is Matt Damon. His name's Matt, so it's a natural fit. <laughs> Probably a little too good looking. I'm going to admit. <laughs> uh, I don't know why. That was the first person that came to mind. I've never been asked that question before. That's a, that's a good one. Thank you, Shells. Okay, we'll go. We'll we'll stick with that one, Matt Damon. Um, all right, next question asker, Chica Bonita. Thank you very much for sending your questions in from Matt Stout. Uh, Chica Bonita wants to know: Can you rem- what is the most memorable CSOP event that you've had, both of the tournament itself and to where the money was donated? St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, the event that we did May of this year. That was it was our biggest fundraiser ever. We raised almost 400 K, but it's not just that. We, we also, Oh, this one's going to be tough to answer. We try to do it without crying in 2020. I lost my great nephew to cancer. He was two years old. My nephew, who I mentioned, who lives with me now, decided to move out to Vegas and move in with me after that to start a new life. And I was already working with St. Jude, but to lose a two-year-old in our family and to have our family go through it made that one so much more significant to me. But then it was also because, like, in 2019, we raised 359000 with that event, but we had pre-raise before the event like 175k and that included a $60,000 presenting sponsor and a $50,000 private donor mm-hmm. who didn't support the last event. So uh-huh. we went into the event scrambling and kind of depressed as a committee like we really gave it all we had and had only pre-raised like 75k in sponsorships and uh like revenue pre-event 
So we kind of thought that we were going to end up raising like 200 to 250K, which was going to be a big step back from what we did in 2019 and a little bit of a disappointment. We were still going to net a lot of money for the charity, of, of course. course. It was still going to be a success if we hit that. But like it really was brutal having worked as hard as we did and not getting the revenue and not being where we wanted to be with the event. Mm -hmm. So somehow, some way, um, and a, a lot of this goes back to what I said about making sure that you have a committee who's like dedicated to this event. This is their main focus. They're not doing a ton of different events a year. And like, um, the committee just brought all their friends, brought everyone they could. And like, even though we hadn't pre-raised what we wanted to, we ended up raising over 300 K night of, and did like 140 K in live auction when we thought we were going to do 50 okay. or something like just it, everything came together in the end and everyone went nuts in the silent auction. Russell Rosenblum like was there and he, <laughs> while they were auctioning off a trip to Italy, he added his private jet to the oh, wow. <laughs> so crazy stuff happened at that event. And wow. just everyone came through so clutch and it managed to just work itself out in the end. Okay. And that was gonna be that was gonna be so disappointing, not only in time in terms of like how hard we worked and for how long. But just like, you know, my performance in that is how I honor Jason's memory. So beautiful thing. Beautiful thing. Um, next question from Chica Bonita wants to know, can you name a player or players who over the eight years of the CSOP's existence have most often taken part in your charity events and tournaments? Oh boy, I would love to, and I'm going to do so, but I also want to, I'm going to feel bad if I leave anyone out. <laughs> um, I'm deathly afraid that I'm going to leave off some people who have been amazing supporters to us, but I will start by saying uh, some of the people from our board of directors and people who have attended some of the most events would be Matt Savage, Judy Beelan, uh, Lacey Jones. We now have Phil Helmuth on our board of directors and has attended several events. Uh, Anthony Zeno is another one who is, just seems to always be there. Andrew Brown, Ryan Reese has been to several of them. Uh, Chance Corneth was on our board of directors and has been a big supporter for a long time as well. Joe Cam, uh, God, I'm going to get called out by someone for not having mentioned them <laughs> on this list. There's, there's just a ton of like a ton of amazing people in the poker community that have really gone out of their way. Lonnie Harwood has played a lot of them. Lonnie Hui, sorry. Yes. Last name change. Of course. That's wonderful. It's always great to hear, like you said, you know, it's the best elements of poker doing the best thing that poker can do, uh, you know, turn towards charity. And it's nice to hear all those folks who are supportive of such wonderful causes, uh, you know, with their time, with their funds. It's a, it's a very good thing. Um, one last question from Chica Bonita. We'll move on to our final question asker. Uh, this one may come out of right field for you, Matt. So I hope you're ready for it. Uh, Chica Bonita says as follows, as far as I know, again, this is not my question, this is Chica Bonita's question. As far as I know, 
In your life, there was an experience of working in a woman's underwear store. That sounds pretty shocking. Please tell us about it. So the only job you could get in Bayonne, New Jersey, when you were 15 years old, was at Barney Stock Shops. And it gets so much worse. This is a women's clothing store primarily geared toward giant boulder slinging bras and undergarments and such. And during the hometown fair, in order, I think, just to screw with the stock boys, the owner of the company would ask us to go out on Broadway while all of our friends are walking around enjoying the fair. That was uh, the worst job I've ever had, and it's one of my main <laughs> motivators to make it in poker. There you know? you go. <laughs> That's fair. Fair. Good answer. Moving on, then, uh, to a non-undergarment-related questions. Acid Burn FX has the last questions for you uh, and wants to know, Matt, what job would you never do and why? So many. Uh, well, what I would category of jobs? I would say working with bugs would come to mind, um, working in prisons, but in general, like most jobs I would rule out because I would have to work for somebody else. Okay. Um, I honestly, I would rule out all jobs in the for-profit sector. I can't imagine. And like, I've thought about taking jobs in the nonprofit sector if it's appealing enough, but I can't work for somebody else's bottom line and somebody else's mission if it's not something that I believe in and want to do and to be a part of and to further. So I'm not going to sell hours of my life to benefit someone else's bottom line and just grind it out for them. Like I would take certain jobs if I feel like I can be um, very beneficial with my knowledge and experience in different nonprofit missions. We just got two more questions from Acid Burn FX before uh, we let you go, Matt. Uh, I love the creativity here. Uh, Acid Burn FX asks if you could designate a new holiday, what holiday would you create and what month would it appear on the calendar? Uh, I would hold Poker Day in July. I feel like there should be a national holiday commemorating the World Series of Poker Made event, especially if it's going to help people get an excuse to travel to Vegas for it. Nice. You know, more day off from work would help people squeeze in that flight of the main event, right? Excellent. I love it. That's a good answer. Good, good pokery answer. Um, and the last question, I think it's pretty fitting because, you know, over the course of our discussion, it's become exceptionally clear uh, that, you know, obviously the CSOP, you know, takes up a tremendous amount of time uh, and effort, uh, you know, of, of your life. Obviously, you've got your personal life, which is exceptionally busy. And of course, playing poker, studying poker. So, you know, not uh, not too many free hours in the day, I would imagine, between all among all of those things. So Acid Burn FX wants to know if you could get a full eight hours of sleep and yet still finish simple tasks while sleeping, what would you want to get done? Get through my emails and crap and answering all the the stupid little 
things that take up my day and my time just gets sapped away dealing with like the little tiny logistics of uh, working out kinks, looking for uh, proofreading for edits is one of the things that I have the hardest time letting go of Mm. um, letting and delegating to someone else in the office. So I would say like emails and proofing all the flyers, all the decks, all the websites. Uh, If I had my dumb brain had the ability to get that done while I was sleeping. I feel like I would just get so much more done during the day. And that eight out like Brittany's little sister that we have guardianship of just how, how jealous I was that she tries to get at least seven hours of sleep a night. I was like, Oh, that would be luxurious. Wow. Uh, great. It's a great answer. It also, again, just shows uh, you're dedicated to doing things as best as you can uh, in poker, in life, in the CSOP, with family. Uh, it's great. And, you know, considering all that you do, it makes me that much more grateful that you were kind enough to take, uh, you know, more than an hour and, and spend with me here on the Cards Chat podcast. Uh, I want to thank everyone who sent in questions for Matt Stout and just another friendly reminder to all of you out there in the Cards Chat community. We'd love to see you submit your questions for our future podcast guests in the dedicated thread on the forums. Guys, please be sure to give us a good review on iTunes and spread the word via your social media channels if you'd like the show. Matt, before we let you go, is there anything else you'd like to tell the Cards Chat audience? Uh, come check out one of our events, charityseriesofpoker.org. Uh, just, we, we have the best time of our lives playing the game that we love for some of the best beneficiaries that we could raise money for. And it means the world to me. Beautiful. Wonderful. And again, Matt, thank you very much uh, for joining us. Thank you all for tuning in once again to another episode of the Cards Chat Podcast. I'm Robbie Straczynski. You can follow me on Twitter at Card Player Life. I wish you all a wonderful day. Cards Chat, the friendliest poker podcast in town from the world's number one poker community.